Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, I had to buy my dog uh, snow boots because uh, he's a coward who doesn't like the cold. Uh, and I'm Cameron Lalana, and you may notice that I, I look, well, still pretty pale, but less, hi, bud, uh, a little less, my cat's here, for those of you who aren't watching the video, um, I've got new lights, I, I look, I've got more fuller illumination, and also, for those watching video, a new haircut, now you can track the progress of my haircuts every two months, Beautiful. which I, I bring that up mostly because I, I don't know if it was the vibe I gave off, or if this guy who I've only been to once, five months ago, remembered me, but I came in. He said, haircut. I said, yes. He sat me down and without any questions, began cutting my hair. So yeah, that's the best kind. Yeah. I don't know if he assumed I was from like the nearby naval base and just like, all right, this guy wants a military cut, which is roughly what I normally get. Or he remembers me. I don't know which option is worse for me. Yep. Yeah. Just your... Anyway. <laughs> Not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say we'll say it after the podcast is done. i text it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. man that was a funny one and no one listening is ever gonna know <laughs> I, I had a friend after i got my uh, first undercut my friend also went out and got an undercut and with it uh they looked exactly like um a hitler youth member <laughs> I, I i i struggle with this because i really love the look of cool people who have undercuts on like mm-hmm. i should have an undercut but i know there is that risk and i'm just there. not really willing to chance it <laughs> yeah because yeah, you just gotta you, you just have to live with that after you can't <laughs> there's no escaping it yeah it, it's would have been one thing if i was still completely working from home but i have to go face the music of seeing uh college students every sure. day yeah i can't have that no that makes sense oh the podcast you may ask <laughs> Well, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Welcome back in this fine evening. We're finishing up book two of War and Peace, covering parts four and five. Uh, The you do not mess with Natasha part, I will (laughs) tentatively call it. And after investing all this time reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of the reading. That's why you should head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we post a reading guide for each episode, uh, and that includes quick commentaries on major quotes and themes. Plus, once a month uh, during this series, we're going to be hosting a Patreon-only reading group. We've already had one. It was a great conversation. Uh, And we'll be using that to discuss everything we didn't get to talk about in the podcast and other things you may have thought about as you're going through this reading on your own. It was good. I just finished up making the reading guide for this episode. So uh, I'm just saying you're going to want it. And if you don't have it, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not part of the podcast in group, actually. And that should that should peer pressure you. Into... A vaunted group. Yes. Yes. Not many people can be part of this group. Anyways. <laughs> well, everyone can be part of the group, but not everyone is. You, right. Which is what makes it exclusive. Right. Well, that's what they tell me. <laughs> If you're not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Maybe one day I'll actually send an email out to that email list. <laughs> <laughs> I used to. And you could be that you could be one of the first ones to find out if you sign up. You could be one of the first ones to find out. <laughs> <laughs> and before we get into the reading today, Matt, I've got to ask you, I see you sipping on something over there. What, oh, what yeah. have you brought to the table today? I am drinking IPA. (laughs) 
<laughs> a non-alcoholic malt beverage made by Partake Brewing from somewhere in New York and or Canada. So okay, it it tastes like it uh, says, which is it tastes like IPA. What kind of IPA? <laughs> IPA. <laughs> mm, I love the brand of or the flavor of IPA brand IPA. <laughs> it's kind of cool though the non-alcoholic stuff it is sure. 10 calories so you can have all the taste of beer without any of the downside granted without any of the fun but also without any of the downside <laughs> without any of the downsides or upsides of beer you can get yourself it's just a neutral drink <laughs> like sometimes uh my girlfriend will lock down and i'll be cracking open a non-alcoholic beer it'll be like hmm. noon and yeah she'll be like hey wait a minute shouldn't you not be drinking at noon and to that, I'd say, well, one, it had never stopped me before, but two, this is now non-alcoholic, so it's okay. <laughs> there we go. That's how you. That's how you justify it. That's how you beat the system, baby. That's. <laughs> Anyways, what have you got over there? Uh, I have um, my one more step in. Uh, now I live in the Central Valley of California. Uh, my joking um, patriotism for the Central Valley is, is taking one more step towards being unironic. From mm-hmm. Tioga Sequoia Brewing, which is a Central Valley, Valley independent brewer, I have the Half Dome California Wheat. Uh, it is part of their series, which are all named after uh, various mountains and or climbs in uh, the Central Valley of California. And it's brewed with, uh, not only is it a wheat beer, it is brewed with uh, Fresno peaches, or, well, Central Ooh. Valley peaches. It's brewed in Fresno. That sounds delicious. It is. It's sweet. Not overly mm. so. Very pleasant. It was a real hot day. It's not. We're in the dead of winter. Um, but if it was a hot day, this would be really refreshing. It is, but, you know, could be more. I thought that was a twisted tea can for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. That is a, a severe guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, so I wouldn't even judge you. Yeah. <laughs> I've come here with my favorite independent brewer, Twisted Tea or Well, you okay, I knew it wasn't a Twisted Tea when you got <laughs> to an independent brewer. But before that, <laughs> how was I to know? No, I I think that would be a bold move. Something it's something we would do. Well, I mean, you got you got it from a local store. It's like kind of That's true. It's a local beer because I bought local it locally. Beer. <laughs> local <laughs> beer brewed by a good group of brothers. <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk about this part of War and Peace, uh, which we are going to informally call the Don't Mess with Natasha part. Mm-hmm. Um, although, well, it is also part largely about messing with Natasha in a certain sense. Yeah, but the moral of the story is you shouldn't mess with Natasha, but sure. feel free to have your way with Pierre's wife, but only <laughs> if you're related to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You think that's a joke from like the ongoing Alabama, not the the ongoing um, Sweet Home Alabama meter. However, mm-hmm. that is almost not quite a quote from Pierre, but very close <laughs> from Pierre. I love Pierre, actually. I think that you get such a you you get such a great character arc from him <laughs> in this. He's such a character. That's all I have to say about him well let's let's get into it so we can talk about him unless there's something you want to address before we we head into this part no i just want to hear about him i want to hear you talk about him more all right my favorite character kind of. <laughs> we've set up pierre but we're going to take a second to get there because before we get to talking about pierre and moscow society uh, when everyone has an avengers style meetup uh we're going to talk about the um rostov family who are out in uh, the countryside so I think we touched upon this last time. Nikolai, back with the Pavlogradsky Regiment, gets a letter from his mother, and she entreats him to come home and says, hey, our finances are 
going downhill pretty fast. Your dad's going to do nothing to fix it. We need you here in order to um, put things right for us. And he comes home and it's been a, a long time since he's been home. I think probably the better part of a year this, at this point. And, uh, and he finds that pretty much everything is the same as he left it, with the exception of Natasha, who he notes now has an exceptionally and extremely calm bearing, especially for someone of her age. Uh, she's 16, maybe 17 at this point. Um, and, and, you know, keep in mind, after Andre proposed to her last time, he leaves on a, at that point, six month trip to go to Europe as his father requested. Um, as we, I don't remember if it's at this point or later on, it, it gets extended through the end of the year. So it's closer to a year that he's going to be gone. I, I do like how he comes back and he's like, wow, Sonia is beautiful, but that's about all she's got. She's not getting any more beautiful. My own sister, on the other hand, wow. <laughs> <laughs> let's see how she develops. <laughs> I, I didn't like it. It's time to bring back the tipsy Tolstoy radio show <laughs> that the Tolstoy hot or not. <laughs> And in and, and this, and this round, Tolstoy, the radio host, you know, Lev Tolstoy will only be rating siblings. <laughs> <laughs> only be rating. He's not rating for himself. He's rating how the siblings view each other. <laughs> yeah. Which is perhaps the worst version of that show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, of, of his sister, Nikolai says she did not seem at all like a girl in love uh, and parted from her affluenced husband. Affianced, Jesus. She did not seem at all like a girl in love and parted from her affianced husband. She was even tempered and calm and quite as cheerful as old. I don't know how to say affianced. Um, I don't know. I read that word like three times and I I, I know that's a word, but I was like, yeah. her a finance husband? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Rostov family that's a finance. <laughs> you can't laugh at me. I'm in a PhD program. I'm very smart. <laughs> it's, it's very serious. I'm very serious. <laughs> very serious business. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> so, and he decides to go deal with his financial, his family's financial problems. Nikolai, after coming home and, and spending some time talking about how beautiful his sister is, unlike the woman he once wanted to marry, um, and he goes and finds what he believes to be the problem or the, the well, the root of the problems, which is uh, his father's manager, Mitenka, and he goes so many threatens to kick him out uh, and kind of throws his family out of his home. And his father, after that whole thing, he, he marches into his father's. Um, office. I forget what exactly what exactly room they're in, but his father's like, "Hey, I got this. Don't worry about it. You know, you don't need to concern yourself." And it's a very like awkward kind of meeting of father and son over family finances, where they're they don't really want to talk about it, but obviously they can't get around it. And it's so awkward that Nikolai's like, "All right, well, look, I'll stay out of this. It's your business after this point." I've come um, home to manage the money. <laughs> I threw one <laughs> servant out of the house. Now I'm done managing the money. <laughs> yeah it's about the extent <laughs> that's about all he does <laughs> yeah so the, from here we go and we go on a hunting expedition it's a fine um we're in late autumn at this point and they go out and hunting is not just it's not just like grabbing your shotgun and going out to hunt a bird like we have in anna karenina this is an event it, it's nikolai is going the count is going uh, natasha and petzia the younger ones uh, are going as well they have a huntsman daniel Daniil, excuse me, uh, who is leading them out there. And they've got 50-something hounds, maybe 60 hounds, another 40-something borzois uh, for, for their hunt. Um, and this one, they're mounted on horseback. They've, the hounds and the borzois kind of track down their prey. Dude, my dog would go crazy for this <laughs> out there in his freaking snow boots. <laughs> he, this, is, this is what he was meant. This is unironically 
yeah. what dogs were raised for for the most of human history. So, well, not this specifically, but Dude, I know I like they're like, oh, you should train your dog so it doesn't like chase things. I was like, you try. Like I open the door <laughs> sometimes to let them out, and there's like rabbits in our backyard. Yeah, but not for long. There's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that they go they go hunting and it's goes okay not very well especially for nikolai who is desperate for something to go well for himself um anybody can't do it even he even when he gets the drop on a wolf and he's sending all his hounds out after the wolf in quite an extended scene he does not the wolf gets away from all his his pack and it comes down to the huntsman daniel to like basically jump on the wolf and, and grab her to and be like oh look and then basically let nikolai come in and do the last two percent of work and say wow great job nikolai you sure did a, you sure did a lot to catch that wolf <laughs> and uh, as they're hunting one of their 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 hunts gets uh, taken by another huntsman who is uh employed by a nearby neighbor of theirs uh Ilagin. and everything that nikolai's heard about Ilagin is this guy is you know our enemy our, our neighborly enemy essentially so he's ready to hate him but as they chat they end up really liking each other Nikolai is like if there was a 19th century, if like someone on Twitter got transported to the 19th century, but with all the pent up rage that exists there, that just kind of comes with being on Twitter. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a that's a good description. Awesome. Yeah, he's. Um, yep. I've never met him, but I hate him. <laughs> We're mortal enemies. <laughs> I've heard that I should. So he's my mortal enemy. So they, they undertake a competition, but uh, neither of them actually managed to make it. They're both scooped uh, in hunting a hare with their dogs by a man who Nikolai calls uncle. He's a distant relative of theirs, but more so a neighbor. And they end up does going your edition out- have the hmm. word uncle in quotation marks? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I should check the original, but I, I always kind of like the um, sort of. I I just found it funny. Is all yeah quotation marks kind of make it seem like seductive like sexy like oh <laughs> this uncle who could he be it's kind of this this mystery even I though they do know who he is i didn't get that but i, I mean no that's... <laughs> it was it's not supposed to be read like that but i don't know yeah. i just kind of thought it was funny that's fair i mean sometimes that's <laughs> that, that is how you approach things sometimes yeah you know kind of like a big like tolstoy and masked singer sort of deal Oh, yes. Oh, no, I've never seen the show. <laughs> so our, our friend, the mass singer, the uncle, the mysterious, <laughs> possibly sexy uh, man, invites uh, you know, Nikolai. Is, is he hot? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to double check. I didn't really think the scene was that important, but maybe yeah. it was. I don't, I don't remember, but you know, Natasha, they, they go over to his house, they enjoy some, some, uh, refreshments and Natasha dances to the coachman playing a uh, balalaika and then the uncle playing a guitar and everyone, uh, m- the important thing is that she and like is lifting everyone's mood, which is something you'll kind of see you've seen and, and the, the last part we're recovering and it will continue to see for part of this piece of, of the book, uh, where she's just in light, uh, bringing light to everyone in the room. And as she's on their way home, it seems like life can't get any better for her. From there, we catch up to the rest of the story in a sense where the money problems are still there. The Countess decides to step in and she says, there's only one hope for our family. Nikolai has to marry Rich. Okay, Nikolai. <laughs> she sits him down and says, there's this woman out in Moscow, Julie Kragina. And uh, Julie is uh, the the acquaintance of Maria, Maria Bolkonsky, or Bolkonskaya. And you need to marry her. 
And Nikolai says, uh, maybe, but I'm in love with Sonia. But, you know, we'll figure it out. I'm willing to sacrifice for my family, but I really don't know. It's not very present for him. So that's that's kind of where he leaves it for now. If by sacrifice for my family, I mean my family sacrifices for me, <laughs> then yes, I am willing to do that. <laughs> yeah, he's getting he kind of talks himself in a circle around it. Yep. As, as it said in the text, uh, things are not happy in the Rostov home. The Count and the Count is worried about money. Nikolai does not really want to go along with his mom. Natasha is now, you know, months into not seeing Andre. And she's just kind of dealing with that by ordering servants around with a lot of pointless tasks, like setting them up to get ducks. And later on in the middle of the conversation, the servants will show up saying, oh, we got the, the not the duck, the um, the rooster, the rooster you wanted. And she says, I don't need it. Send it away. So <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of small pieces like that. That leads into conversations Natasha and Nikolai get pretty close as they're as they're chatting they philosophize um, and it leads up to a party a, a holiday party where they all dress up in fun holiday costumes like a Turk and a Circassian <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it sounds like a really uh, bad like party city Halloween <laughs> costume would you say it like that it, that's what it is which it, uh, it is what it is yeah yeah, um, and so I should note, Sonia, I think Sonia's dressed as, in big quotations here, a Turk. Yeah. And <laughs> so they, they have a holiday party. They go over to their neighbors to celebrate more. And as they're at this holiday party, as Sonia is dressed as, in quotations, a Turk, uh, Nikolai kind of falls in love again, and they both go out to the forest to go make out. I had a uh, professor once who would unironically and i you know if she's listening to this i say that's out of a place of love because i always got such a kick out of it she would refer unironically to different scenes of russian literature as being kinky but not in a <laughs> sexual way she would just sure. mean it as in like something is interesting about this scene well this scene is kinky in a kinky kind of way uh in the fact that right a lot of them are, are cross-dressing and just interesting point on how the narration is really specific on describing Sonia's mustache as every being time. one of the things that every time that Nikolai is is fixating on. It's just an interesting point. I'm not saying it's indicative of anything per se, but it's interesting. It is interesting that every time he talks about how beautiful is, he can't help but notice, noting her mustache. And he's like, oh, God, she's so hot. Look at her mustache. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so that leads into him telling his mother, I'm not going to marry Julie, mom. I'm in love with my cousin. <laughs> and <laughs> which is not how he phrases it, obviously. But that leads into family conflict. The count tries that. First of all, the countess says no. The count says no, but he says it a lot softer because he knows that he's the reason why they're in their financial straits. So he feels bad because yep. he kind of caused yep. this. And Nikolai and his mom almost have a catastrophic argument. He has to leave for his regiment again. And after that, Sonia, who lives in their house, mind you, uh, the countess is just awful to her all the time after this point. So again, things in the the Rostov household, not happy. And even Natasha is not happy, even with her, her beloved, big quotes there, um, husband-to-be. When, when she receives letters from him, it's noted, his letters, for the most part, irritated her. It hurt her to think that while she lived only in the thought of him, he was living a real life, seeing new places and new people that interested him. The more interesting his letters were, the more vexed she felt. Her letters to him, far from giving her any comfort, seemed to her a wearisome and artificial obligation. Dude, Natasha loses it in this part. She, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking about that, actually, really empathizing with her in this part about how much it would have sucked to just see the same people every day. Because they go to like some balls and parties and whatnot, but not that frequently and only because they've kind of gotten old enough. Hmm. But like for the most part, every day is just sitting around with your family. And in a state of life where even getting like mildly attracted to someone is like, I think I'm in love because this like hot guy hit on me and now I have to marry him. Well, I mean, this this poor girl, I mean, she sees someone who gives her any attention and she's like, well, I guess I got to marry him. <laughs> Like, I don't really blame her. I mean, like... No, yeah, but that's... Uh, that's Well, and we'll get into that more. So, uh, with Nikolai deciding not to marry Julie, or at least even try, um, they have decided, okay, we're going to start selling off our estates, so they go back to Moscow, or most of them go back to Moscow to begin that process. Uh, the Countess, from all the stress, falls ill, and she remains in the countryside. Now, this brings us into uh, part five, uh, which will close out this part, and we... This is... I think right after the new year. So now we're entering 1811. And so we're, we're going to join our friend, our dear, dear friend, Pierre, who after the announcement of Andre and Natasha's marriage and the death of his uh, mentor, Yosef Alexeyevich, Pierre has pretty much fallen back into his old ways. He's avoiding his Mason brothers. He's uh, just drinking a lot. He's doing everything he did as a bachelor. And it's such an embarrassment that uh, Helena sits him down and says, you need to like not cause me problems. And he decides it's time to go to Moscow. And he finds that Moscow life is really agreeable to him. He is just, he's always present. He's always around and he's, he's sort of happy to be there. Um, and I say sort of, because I'm going to read a little bit of an extended quote as he basically spends his life doing nothing but going to parties. He thinks, well, not thinks the narrator says for him, how horrified he would have been seven years before when he first arrived from abroad had he been told that there is no need for him to seek out or plan anything, that his rut had long been shaped, eternally predestined, and that wriggle as he might, he would not be what all in his position were. He could not have believed it had he not at one time longed with all his heart to establish a republic in Russia, then himself be a Napoleon, then be a philosopher, and then even be a strategist and the conqueror of Napoleon. But instead of all that, here he was, the wealthy husband of an unfaithful wife, a retired gentleman-in-waiting, fond of eating and drinking. For a long time, he could not reconcile himself to the idea that he was one of those same retired Moscow gentlemen-in-waiting he had so despised seven years ago. Awesome. <laughs> so, not going great for our buddy Pierre, although, you know, he's drinking and, and reading enough. That's all he does. But he's both happy to be in society and also pissed off to be in society because he can see nothing but evil in everything he does, which is why he can't stick with anything. Everything around him, he sees uh, just things he's not happy with. He, he says, we all profess as in the middle of a big screed. I think this is a good capstone to it. We all profess the Christian law of forgiveness of injuries and love of our neighbors. But yesterday, a deserter was knouted to death and a minister that of that same law of love and forgiveness, a priest gave the soldier a crossed kiss before his execution. And whatever it's, it goes on to say, whatever he tried to be, Pierre, whatever he engaged in, the evil and falsehood of it repulsed him and blocked every path of activity. Yet he had to live and find occupation. It was too dreadful to be under the burden of these insoluble problems, so he abandoned himself to any distraction in order to forget them. The entire part of chapter one is some top-tier writing or some characterization of Pierre as someone who is just a little too high-minded, in a sense. He just cannot help but see the falsehoods and the shortcomings of everything he works in, and he just can't engage himself with anything. So he retreats to his life of luxury because he can. 
Yeah, I think he's interesting because it gives him a little bit more depth in this part where he's not just an oaf. Like, he's awkward, incredibly, incredibly awkward in basically every function of society. But he's still a pretty perceptive person all around. He's not just, like, a dumb oaf, I guess is what I'd say. He's someone who's too smart and that, like, creates his own downfall where he can't. They're, sure. He's someone who's, I think, in a sense, morally black and white and not... Not how he lives his life, but in the way he tries to analyze the world that he can't. Sure. He, he can't engage with something without fully believing in it, truly and honestly, mm-hmm. which it's hard to find a true profession like that, especially when you're living. I mean, you know, he wants to be someone who's freeing his serfs. He's creating like he's like a liberal former, but also sort of a conqueror of his own right and a philosopher. And he's all these things that are essentially contradictory things that he cannot be as a land holder in right, you know, right. the, the Russian Empire. He cannot be a liberator as a holder of serfs. And he cannot right. be a conqueror of territory without an army, without people who, without money, which he gets from his serfs. So he's living a life of contradictions, which he's both aware of and not aware of. And I'm not saying that this is like Tolstoy mainlining this into Pierre, but... No, he is. I think that Pierre becomes uh, deeper as a character as a result of Tolstoy imbuing the narrator, who then imbues Pierre with these sort of views that make him interesting. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll see more of that evolve over the the course of this part. So mm-hmm. um, at the same point in time, Elder Balkonsky, uh, Nikolai Balkonsky and Maria are heading back to uh, Moscow too. Keep in mind that he was, he's playing a really important role in raising troops for the new coming war. So he's highly respected uh, and everyone thinks really well of the Elder Balkonsky. However, it's noted the visitors did not reflect that besides the couple of hours during which they saw their host, there were also 22 hours in the day during which the private and intimate life of the house continued. And all that's to say is things are really bad in the Volkonsky household. Uh, the elder Volkonsky is more abusive than ever to Maria. He's more uh, apparently decidedly certain that he's going to marry Madame Bor- or Mademoiselle Borienne. Um, Mademoiselle Borienne no longer really associates with Maria. Maria's friend, uh, Julie Karagina, she has come into a fortune. Um, and so even though she lives in Moscow and Maria should have a very close by friend, Julie is now totally ensconced and paying attention to her new parties, suitors, all this life she has to keep up. And she's no longer interested in Maria now that she has other options. So not great. Uh, but the other Balkonsky is torpedoing any suitors who comes by, who come by to see Maria. And even it's, it's to an extent that Maria's thoughts to her father turn pretty dark and she chastises herself for it, but it, it continues. Following that, uh, we have a, a meeting of the count because every, to go to like an evening with the count is a big deal. That shows that you are kind of a mover and a shaker. And of course, our friends Pierre and Boris, who's really worked his way up the ladder, uh, are present and they go over you know Napoleon's victories and the coming war and how they're dealing with it. Um, and the prince is very cold to Maria the entire night. But towards the end, the thing that we should point out is that Pierre kind of pulls Maria inside and says, hey, uh, you know, Boris is here and he's thinking about marrying you potentially and she says what do you mean he's like well he's deciding between you or uh julie and well julie's really rich that's kind of putting it in her favor but he is interested in you and he didn't talk to it all but really is the fashion to attract moscow girls these days you have to be melancholic that's really important (laughs) i love that (laughs) (laughs) um it's not a plot summary worthy chapter but just like when he's trying to talk to julie and he's just putting on this air of 19th century emo it's just awesome yeah exactly yeah so boris like yeah he he does try to he we go into him being yeah exactly like writing like they're sitting there writing poetry about death 
into her albums and you know boris so is like is really more attracted to mario overall but julie's rich and also it sounds like anatoly might try to marry julie so he's like well i gotta i gotta lock this in but he's so non-interested in it that he can't even say i love you let's get married he just says you know what i'm interested in essentially <laughs> he he doesn't even it's partially the competition but it's it's the idea that if he wasn't going to marry her, then he just wasted this entire month. And <laughs> yeah. that that's not good. I can't have that. That have Ron said you should just get married. Just get married, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. So following that, we we now come back to the Rostovs coming to Moscow around this time. Uh and they begin to stay with an acquaintance of theirs, Maria Dmitrievna, because their own house and Moscow is uh, unheated, so not entirely fit for living at this time. And she wanted to see them for a long time so may as well and she's a really organized woman so she also sets herself about setting their own affairs in order so really like natasha and the balkanskis she kind of decides i'm going to step in i'm going to make this work for you i know the elder balkanski does not like you maria doesn't have much of a connection to you but we're going to make it happen you have to go see maria tomorrow and natasha says okay i'll do it and she goes to see maria and it's a disaster. The Count refuses to even come see her. Madame Borian doesn't leave the room the entire time. And so they can't even really have a sense to talk. And they just spend like an entire afternoon, uh, Maria and Natasha do, just getting angry at each other and feeling more hatred towards each other, <laughs> which is not great. And that's Healthy. that's how they leave that. Which then takes us to uh, the, the next day. You know, like Natasha's so put out that she's just, she doesn't... <laughs> She doesn't feel right about anything. She doesn't even want to go to this play, but she does. And the gang's all here. Helena arrives and she's wearing apparently a fairly low cut dress, which is referred to consistently and constantly as almost nude. So, yep. <laughs> um, and don't, don't worry. Tolstoy does in fact let you know what exactly that means. I'm <laughs> sure you were worried about that. You thought he's not going to get weirdly horny in this part. That's going to be too bad. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, and uh, you know Julie and Boris are there. Dolokhov is back from Persia. He's got a do- several side characters are off in their oh, books of their own. In more yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the play starts, and Helena calls out to Natasha, brings her over to her, and really starts to charm her. And although the play at first seems false and terrible to Natasha, the more she's in Helena's presence, she feels like, oh, this is actually quite nice. I mean. Like such an important woman's paying attention to me. And then Helena's brother comes in and sits down with her and kind of begins to pay a lot of attention to Natasha, such that Natasha feels almost naked under his stare and feels like, you know, there's really nothing. I've got so much protection of a sort of my family of not like dress for theater clothing, all this. This is stripped away. And he's like really zeroing in on her. It's it's very much like um shorthand you could say predatory but longhand it, it, it probably in the way that anatoly does see it is like wolf in the hunt kind of mode ah quite interesting this takes place right after wolf hunt quite interesting <laughs> something to pay attention to perhaps so after that natasha goes home she's up the whole night because she's like even though nothing's happened uh her quote former purity of her love for prince andre had perished and again in imagination she went over her whole conversation with karagan and again she saw the face the gestures and tender smile of that bold handsome man when he pressed her arm later in the evening 
And so Anatoly, for his part, he's in Petersburg, or excuse me, he's in he's in Moscow because of his immense debts in Petersburg. <laughs> and so he's come here because his father says, I'll pay off some of your debts, but only if you get a job. And Anatoly is looking for that. And, you know, he's a he's a womanizer, but he's a womanizer with rules. He doesn't go after a married woman because he's already married. Boom. Because a Polish landowner made him marry his daughter. And then Pierre Anatoly paid him off to say to not spread the news around so he can keep doing his thing. Oops. Uh, Oops, but and I'm going to read these these lines here. It's again a little bit longer, but we're starting to really hammer in some of the things we've been talking about, especially about evil. Um, Anatoly was incapable of considering his how his actions might affect others or what the consequences of this or that action might be. Well, he was not a gambler. At any rate, he did not care about winning. He was not vain. He did not mind what people thought of him. Still less could he be accused of ambition. More than once had he vexed his father by spoiling his own career, and he laughed at distinctions of all kinds. He was not mean and did not refuse anyone who asked things of him. All he cared about was gaiety and women. And as according to his ideas, there was nothing dishonorable in these tastes. And he was incapable of considering that what gratification he got, uh, what gratification this entailed for others. He honestly considered himself irreproachable, sincerely despised rogues and bad people, and had a tranquil tranquil conscience and carried his head high. I think Tolstoy would have lost his mind if he was alive when that... uh... When will you learn that your actions have consequences video came out? (laughs) That's like, if you watch that enough times, I think that you probably get like the same sort of ethical moral value as reading War and Peace. (laughs) (laughs) That is, yeah, that is, that is a shorthand for this entire book, essentially. (laughs) When will you learn? (laughs) So check the show notes for that video. Um, And if you haven't seen the video, it's too late. Sorry. It's too. It's, it's, it's over too for you. Just like Andre, you. <laughs> life is over. If you haven't seen that one video, you have no ethics or morals. Sorry, <laughs> Tolstoy said. <laughs> uh, so Andre pretty much tells Helena that he wants, like, he would like to to sleep with Natasha. That's what he's into. And Helena says, "All right, sounds fun." And the next day, <laughs> Natasha goes out to get like a dress. Or soon after that, she goes out to get a dress fitted. And Helena just shows up and says like, hey, we had such a good time at the play. Natasha is feeling like, wow, this important woman's paying attention to me. And Helena kind of starts getting her to come to a dinner party that she's throwing. And it said, Helena, for her part, was sincerely delighted with Natasha and wished to give her a good time. Anatoly had asked her to bring him and Natasha together. And she was calling on the Rostovs for that purpose. The idea of throwing her brother and Natasha together amused her. So maybe talk a little bit more about the way that the Karakans view people and how they interact with them. But <laughs> I feel like it's self-explanatory. I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty bad. You shouldn't treat people like that. If you didn't get that, then yeah. I don't know. As as the philosopher Marilyn Manson in his song The Beautiful People <laughs> once proposed. Um <clears throat> So they, they, they invite her to a party and the count does not like this and he accompanies them to the party and pretty much the entire time he does not let them out of his sight except for one brief moment where Anatoly gets in and he like tells her like, hey, you know, uh, Natasha, well, you know, whatever you want basically and he kisses her and, and Natasha goes home and she's like, oh my God, I'm in love with Anatoly. I don't know what to do anymore. And, you know, things are still not going with the Count. Maria Dmitrievna is still the next day trying to convince him. And Maria sends, um, because Andre is going to come home soon. So Maria sends uh, Natasha a letter saying like, hey, let's not, we're going to be family soon. Let's not fight. And Natasha's like, oh, what do I do? What do I say back to her? And her dilemma is solved by getting a love letter from 
uh, Anatoly. And it said, with trembling hands, Natasha held that passionate love letter, which Dolokhov had composed for Anatoly. And as she read it, she found an echo of all that she herself imagined she was feeling. And so she writes back to Mario and says, hey, no worries. It's fine. I'm not going to marry your brother, so please forgive me. And then she also sends an air horn for Mario <laughs> to blast while she read it. Yeah. Nerd. And this doesn't go down as well, go down well, Sonia. That is his own thing. She writes back to Anatoly. And he's like, perfect. So anyway, what we're going to do is I'm going to kidnap you and we're going to go get married in a church 40 miles from here. And we get into it. It's an entire elopement. I'm going to use elopement pretty in big quotes here because I'm not really certain you can call it elopement when like a 30-something-year-old man is like that to a teenager. I think we've got different words for it. But that's what the text, I that's was what the text like, says. I was kind of like interested in this part because... There is some ambiguity as to whose plan that actually is. That's Dolokhov's, essentially. Well, but. kind of, but Dolokhov's also trying to talk him out of it at some point. Dolokhov's like, yeah, this would be pretty funny. I did arrange all of it, but actually thinking <laughs> about it, this actually might be, I don't know, a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I did, I did do all of this, and I am talking, yes. like, they go through, like, the psychology of how to make sure you're, like bride to be doesn't have second thoughts he's like remember don't leave her out in the cold because it's it's gonna you know that might leave second thoughts get her into the warmth so she feels happy to be inside that carriage a little too much experience on how to kidnap women on dolokhov's part and influence their psychology <laughs> yeah that that is that is true i was like ready to walk back my Kragen line i was like i don't know maybe he's just uh, like the puppet with the dolokhov puppet master but no i think they're the worst kind of enablers for each other really <laughs> Yeah, because it's motivated by Tolstoy that they're not even really friends. They just mutually see the benefit the other person has for them and they're just in, like yeah. in turn taking yeah. advantage of each other. Like Dolhov could be a member of that family. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's they, they both see each other just as a way to get ahead and it works out for them, sort of. Yeah, the worst kind of boys club ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they set out, but they're then they try to undertake this plan. They're blocked by Maria Dmitrievna's staff, who um, Sonia breaks down and tells Maria Dmitrievna everything, and she kind of expects something like this. So she like pulls Natasha aside that night after sending the two away. Well, they get away. She tries to trap them, uh, and you know tells her that she's the worst kind of person. How could she do this? And then locks her in a room. Essentially, after that, you know Maria Dmitrievna calls on Pierre, and so we get to all these fun parts where. Pierre is sitting on, on, on these areas to convince Anatoly to leave the city. So if the Count uh, or, you know, Prince Andre is going to be back soon, which, you know, find out they don't challenge him to a duel. And that leads to more awkwardness for everyone. Uh, and she's basically trying to fix everything. And he's very angry, Natasha. The Count knows something's wrong, but he doesn't want to ask, have to ask because then he's going to have to deal with it. So, God forbid. <laughs> so he just the worst character. <laughs> it's just at first I was like, he's like a fun dad. Like, you know, look at this fun house. And then as it goes on, he's just he's he's so bad he's, at everything. He knows that something's wrong, like very, very wrong. But he's trying to sell the estate and that's going to cause a problem for him. So then he does not ask anything about it. And everyone else is happy <laughs> not to talk to him about it. <laughs> so that leads Pierre off into his quest of you know, leading, getting Anatoly to leave the city and coming back and talking to Natasha and telling her, hey, also, Anatoly couldn't have married you. He's already married. Oops. And that leads to Natasha trying to kill herself with arsenic, uh, at which point, uh, you know, Pierre is brought back and he tries to talk to her and he's like, look, um, let me see what I can do for you, whatever you need. And as he's kind of going through this conversation, she's like saying, hey, tell Andre. Oh, so also Andre is back at this point. He returns, but he's just like, doesn't. He's like, well, I kind of expected it. 
just repressing his emotions, um, which is totally unexpected from the son of the elder Balkonsky. Um, and Pierre, as he's telling Natasha, yes, I will take um, your your apologies to Andre. He begins to sort of fall in love with, a, again, a teenager. Um, and that is kind of where we leave off, where he leaves and he's like in such a good mood that he decides, I'm not even going to go to anyone's house or go to a club tonight. That's all so worldly. I'm above that. And he looks at a comet and goes home. <laughs> Okay, so this was uh, for a part which is uh, about the peace part of War and Peace, a surprisingly action-packed part. Is there anywhere you want to begin in particular? Wolf hunt. Wolf hunt. Let's talk about wolves and hunting. Let's talk about some wolves, baby. (laughs) This part's pretty messed up. I think, like, actually, the war parts are much more humane than a lot of the peace parts. It's just, like, a very hyper-masculine event. Right. Not to, you know, hammer in the obvious too much here, but I will start with a quick note on the fact that the wolf hunt is more organized than the entirety of the Russian military. (laughs) And the dogs are way more useful than any of the soldiers. There's this line that says every dog knew its master and its call. Every man in the hunt knew his business, his place and what he had to do. This is way more succinct than anything the Russian military has done so far in this book, (laughs) which has largely been if I'm remembering and correct me if I miss anything, almost forgetting to burn a critical bridge. (laughs) That's about all they've done. There's been some cannon fire, some retreat. Unclear how we ended up at peace to begin with, but hey, here we are. It's been good. Right. Natasha's on the hunt. Natasha the Cossack. Yep, she's there. She's Everyone notes is she's got a very, she's got a a much of a, a joie de vivre in this part of the book. And everyone notes like when she comes to uncle's house, uh, like the pet, like the serfs literally come out and just like stare at her because they're like, oh my God, it's a woman. She's writing. What is that? And then the uncle's like, oh, go away, you simple peasants. And he's like, but that's crazy though. You were riding like a man all day on a horse. Sure, surely that is something that, uh, that riding all day on a horse and not feeling tired is something that only men can do. True. I've heard that. I've that's, heard that. Yeah. It's said all the time. Tolstoy said uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, it's brutal. It's it's unlike Anacrine enough, for example, where it's a you know shotguns and ducks. Not necessarily that's like a more humane way, but it's a pretty it's pretty clean. It's like they're trying to hunt wolves by having their dogs like pull them down to the ground and like tear up bits of flesh. So they can jump off their horses and stab it to death. It's um it's a pretty well, bloody affair. Yeah, and let's not forget the fact that they're specifically hunting for the mother wolf. Like it's a wolf that just had cubs. What do, I don't know what a wolf has. Wolflets. Yeah, I think so um i like wolflets um (laughs) (laughs) and so you get like a bunch of guys is natasha 100 dogs chasing down like one mother wolf and a few cubs which doesn't really seem like a fair fight and she almost beats them (laughs) right she, she does almost get away but then when they catch the wolf instead of just like killing her or whatever there's this line that says they put a stick between its jaws and tied it with a leash as if bridling her, then bound the legs, and Danilo rolled her over once or twice from side to side. So to me, I was comparing this with when Andre is captured by the French mm. and you know, they pick him up, dust him off, Napoleon's like, Good work out there, kid, and he gets returned. Whereas this is like a horrific display of victory, basically. But yeah, so it was a pretty visceral and kind of messed up scene really to read through the hunt it's extremely graphic and then 
structurally to place it right before Anatole is hunting Natasha more or less is <laughs> distressing. And there's some other things that happen during the hunt scene that are kind of interesting, like in the same way that the military sort of functions as this space where role and rank can really be messed up. The hunt kind of serves the same purpose for the peace parts. So the dad count Rostov is basically berated by his servant for letting the <laughs> letting the wolf get past them. And he he's he's not good on this. He's just kind of like riding around doing whatever. And he's also drunk, so that doesn't help. And it's cold outside. And so there's this line that says he was somewhat flushed from the wine and the drive. His eyes inclined to water were particularly bright and sitting in the saddle wrapped up in his fur coat. He looked like a baby taken out for a drive. And so you have all these like macho men getting out there hunting wolves with their dogs. And then you have this like bright red faced flushed dad on his horse wrapped up in a in his, in his coat. And there's a lot of attention played to how he gets looked down upon by everyone. But even like even Tasha does better than him. Basically, <laughs> he goes home immediately after the first wolf is caught and they go on to continue hunting. And yeah, that was just kind of kind of interesting to see the again another overlap between between war and peace. You know w- what are they good for? <laughs> Apparently, being a space where rank can be dismantled. Yeah, I mean to your point, the the only people who actually catch anything on the hunt are the the huntsmen themselves. All the noble nobles accompanying them, both for the Rostovs and for the uh, Ilagan. They fail to catch it every time, with the exception, I think, Uncle, who also isn't. He's, I mean. It's not made clear what exactly he owns. Probably, probably a landowner, someone like them, but someone who just he's just stays out in the countryside. So not exactly mm-hmm. like them. But it's up to the huntsmen mostly. Rostovs aren't happy. Nikolai and Sonia do their you know fall back in love when all it takes is a mustache and a dress. A mustache and a dress. That's all. I I like. I don't know if this was just a fever dream of a scene, mm. but I do not remember reading this on the first time I read this book. <laughs> I was like reading this and I was like, did this, did somebody come in and paste pages into my edition? Am I being punked in the most low reward way possible for someone? To be fair, uh, if you, someone explained to you that, okay, there's a part in war and peace where this, this young soldier, he's wearing a dress and he sees his cousin and she has a mustache on. And then for the first time, like a year, she realized, he realizes how beautiful she is and decides I'm going to marry my cousin. You'd say you just made that up. That's not a real part of War and Peace, but it is in fact a normal part, a real part of War and Peace, and also not by far the weirdest thing that happens. Frankly, not even the top one hundred. Really, the weirdest thing is when Uncle is playing Sweet Home Alabama softly <laughs> in the background in the woods as he watches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Uncle, Uncle, who is he? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know if this is too much of war you want to talk about in part four. You know, I didn't, I didn't categorize my notes by part. I just kind of loosely threw my thoughts into a document. That's fair. That's fair. Well, I, if we, if it works for you, do you want to go forward and talk about Pierre at the beginning of part five? Yeah, I'd like to talk about Pierre a little bit. What do you have to say about Pierre? What a guy. What a guy. Really? What a guy. This monologue that you read is a great one, talking about how he's kind of becoming disillusioned with the world. And there are so, so, so many overlaps with Anna Karenina as I'm reading this again. And 
this is a complete tangent, but I, I sometimes sound insane to people when I kind of say that these books are meant to be read multiple times. And you say, why would I read War and Peace multiple times? Why would I read Anna Karenina multiple times? It, the more that you read them, and especially the closer that you read them together, you just get more out of them. You kind of see how the author develops. And so knowing that War and Peace came first, you can see how a lot of these issues kind of prefigure Anna's story arc. And so this dissension of Pierre, right, which I said was going to happen because he found this moral high of the Masons. Now he's going to come tumbling down. It looks a lot like Anna at the end of Anna Karenina when she's on this carriage ride and she's just seeing evil like everywhere. And they're both concerned with this exact same question, this who is my neighbor, right? In the sort of biblical sense, right? Like, I know my actions, you know, vaguely have consequences, but I, I can't see the consequences outside of myself or those just immediately around me. I could never imagine how they might even begin to impact people that are even uh, slightly further out there, right? And so that's what Pierre is kind of just having a crisis about. And that's a lot of what Anna Karenina is about and what Anna's storyline itself is about as well. And so, yeah, this quote that you pointed to about the priest giving the soldier a cross to kiss before he's executed is great. There is another great one about the Masons taking a blood oath that they're going to sacrifice everything for their neighbor and then they don't give anything to the collection of money for the poor. So there's a lot of these causes. It's not just religion or Masonry or whatever else he finds. It's just like it's a general illness of society that kind of permeates I don't know, like anything organized, basically, all hierarchy, which is really kind of, I feel like it would be kind of a dangerous thing to say, right, at this time. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that even just anything anyone engages in, he becomes, he engages in a sort of nil, uh, nil, nihilism, where mm -hmm. it says um, later on that, it's Pierre, all men seemed like soldiers who are just trying to keep their heads around trenches, trying to occupy themselves with non-war things, uh, seeking refuge from life. Some in ambition, some in cards, some in framing laws, some in women, some in toys, some in horses, some in politics, some in sports, some in wine, and some in governmental affairs. And he says to himself, nothing is trivial and nothing is important. It's all the same. Only to save oneself from it as best you can. Only not to see it. That dreadful it. Whatever it that is for the individual. Death. Death. I'm pretty sure if my notes on my edition are right, this one, I did check the original and it is the feminine it and that it is death thank you to russian gender <laughs> <laughs> making things a little bit clearer in some circumstances yeah mm -hmm. so we've got pierre before sartre about 200 years is engaging with a little proto form of existentialism yeah it's kind of haunted him the whole time because he said the one thing he could never grapple with in freemasonry was the idea that you should love death or that you should be accepting of your own death i can't remember exactly what it was but it has to do with uh not being terrified by the idea of death which of course he is right yeah it's an interesting it's only like one part too this is one or one chapter really of of <laughs> this entire part but yeah it feels there's this vibe i get sometimes in novels where you see like an author and you feel like I feel like the author suddenly had a realization at this point in their novel because it kind of like changes around. It's like reading yeah. Murakami novel, like one of the longer ones. And I always get the sense around like halfway through he realizes, oh, fuck, where was I going with this? And he like <laughs> suddenly gets back on track. After, like Especially in the Wind Up Word Chronicle, for example, or like, oh, God, it's been 300 pages. Where was I going with this? And like suddenly getting back on track. It, it kind of feels like that where suddenly there was not like that exactly, but like a like some point 
some thoughts yeah. about society, as we, we said earlier, get put into the narrator and the narrator puts those into Pierre. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much it was, you know, I think it's mostly intentional because we'll see Pierre has a real kind of emergence in part three when it comes to these sort of moral systems that he's kind of invested in. Yeah. So um, let's go from that. Let's go to the, do you want to go to the Balkonskis or do you want to go to the Kuragans? Uh, we can go to the Balkonskis. I mean, Kuragans are the Kuragans. What are you going to do? The Kuragans, they're, yeah, that's that's a good that's a good way of saying it. Yeah, so the Balkonskis. Things not going great. Well, not for Maria. Okay for the count, or for the prince, excuse me. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in this scene between Natasha and Maria. Hmm. And so the scene where they're kind of talking to each other and just everything is left unsaid because of the maid that refuses to leave, which is hilarious. And they just end up getting, you know, upset. And at the very end, Maria tries to pull it back together and Natasha kind of refuses it. It's this kind of interesting thing that happens in Tolstoy. It also is in an Anacrenina as well. These sort of scenes where... Uh, the whole fate of something lies on just one split second moment. There's just one moment where something can be pushed over the edge or just kind of left unsaid. And that's exactly what happens here. And the relationship can never be recovered after. (laughs) Dude, that sucks. That's all I have to say on it. I don't really know if we'll get an example here because I can't remember of this specific case where it it does then kind of get recovered uh in anna karenina it doesn't so far here definitely doesn't um but there are a few i I don't know if it's just like a tolstoy narrates coming of age but there are a couple instances in these two parts i noticed more than in others where characters are just like if this doesn't happen at this exact moment like it is all over for me which is probably again being young however this was kind of an interesting one as to how it kind of worked or didn't yeah i mean that's something that's as as we went to kind of turn slightly to natasha here it's something that's like really hard to escape as a reader today whereas you're going through this and it feels like a pretty good exploration of like a of a teenager's psyche um and how they approach things but it's that's it doesn't feel like that was the intent it was like it was it's well it's a teenager psyche put forth into decisions which will be deciding the rest of their life um sure indecisive a little fearful very helpful very imaginative very susceptible to those who are seemingly older and better quote unquote mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. i think the kind of horrifying part of seeing that is just that i feel like especially here at the impact of these decisions is much longer lasting than for the most part today yeah i mean that's the whole point of anatoly's character in a way is that he he's out here just to have a good time and well i'm not a bad person because i'm just out here to do good for my you know what i think is fun not considering how what he thinks is fun might impact other people for example i think it'd be really fun to sleep with this teenager doesn't factor into but what if things go really really badly <laughs> well there's actually no no good i don't think because yeah. eventually it'll be found out that he's already married 
And then that leaves Natasha with nowhere else to go, basically. The best solution they can think of is, oh, well, they could put him on trial. Or that's what Dalhoff says to him. is like, they're going to put you on trial. Which is, of course, bad for him, but actually even worse for Natasha, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, so... Sucks. But yeah, there's... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's really supposed to be how Tolstoy narrates young people because not everyone gets it as bad as natasha like the narrator is also not really doing her any favors in just the amount of descriptions that are just talking about how in love she is with everyone but the narrator kind of cuts it kind of like cuts it down and excludes it sort of to her in some ways constantly saying like well it seemed to her or you know like things along that line which is of course kind of the case right and yeah, so that leads into the whole heavy quotes on elopement plot being <laughs> yeah, found out. Something like that. Being, yeah, subjected to Maria Dmitrievna's fix of it, which takes us forward to, I don't know if you want to step back for a second, but I want, I want to go forward to Pierre in his conversation with Anatoly. Um, the only thing I wanted to talk about was like this sort of initial seduction at the, at the theater. It's also the exact same thing as Anna Karenina. Like, Anna has this exact dialogue to herself. It's fascinating. So, so Natasha's just talking to herself as a well-adjusted person does. And she says, am I spoiled for Prince Andre's love or not? She asked herself and answered with reassuring mockery. What a fool I am to ask that. What actually happened to me? Nothing. I've done nothing. I didn't lead him on in the least. Nobody will know and I'll never see him again, she told herself. So since it's clear that nothing has happened, there is nothing to repent of, and Prince Andre can still love me. But why still? Oh my god, why isn't he here? So in Anna Karenina, Anna has this exact same thing. This exact same sort of like logicking her way through what happened and why it wasn't a big deal, because nothing happened. But well, if it wasn't a big deal, then why am I sitting here trying to talk myself into the idea that nothing actually happened? So clearly something did happen. And so this sort of kind of back and forth is well it just made me think that i gotta read it again (laughs) (laughs) that's what it always leads back to (laughs) yeah it is really interesting i I really like would like to do a more in-depth kind of look at the characters and like these dialogue patterns that i've kind of noticed lately on rereading where Tolstoy will kind of (laughs) basically recycle almost an entire paragraph right and just apply it to a different character but i'd be curious to see what like prototypes of characters he combines because i actually think that he combines right natasha and then pierre even a little bit into anna but who cares about that that's a separate <laughs> topic we'll come back to that in our <clears throat> anna Karenina retrospective episodes in our um, summer number two of anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So going back to Pierre kind of being made sort of the fixer of a sort for, or like the wandering fixer for Maria Dmitrievna, mm-hmm. um, which he goes out of his way. There's all the stuff he does for it, which he doesn't, he wasn't asked to do, but he just feels like he should do in terms of covering it up. Yep. And so he finds Anatoly in his own home. Um, and he, like Anatoly is hanging out with Helena and he drags him off. And and says, as we alluded to at the very beginning of this episode, he he tells Anatoly, your games, if you want to play them with women like, you know, my wife, fine, that's okay. (laughs) But you cannot do that to a maid who is her whole life ahead of her. 
<laughs> and and hammers it into Anatoly's head that he has got to get out of there and says like even you know whatever money you need to get out of here you you know I'll give it to you uh which revolts him when when Anatoly smiles after hearing that he's going to get some money but going back to it uh yes he does specifically line up like you can uh you can apply your wiles on fallen woman like my wife comma your sister however you cannot do it <laughs> the people like natasha <laughs> that's great not too much to say there just and just all, all the characterization of both helena and Kuragin and their way they view people not like matt said not too much to say there it's pretty self-explanatory and not that it like it's a uh, revelatory to say the the point at the the line between them and uh steva but like you know steva feels like a sort of understated version of that where where you know you understand the same basic idea but only through reaction instead of the narrator getting a hammer and then hammering the idea into your head every other chance the narrator true. has true yeah i think it's kind of interesting where the the part kind of starts with the narrator talking about how pierre you know seven years ago he was this reformer and to think that he's now just going down the beaten path of a wasteful aristocrat. It's kind of interesting because I feel like he didn't really accomplish anything. <laughs> he hasn't accomplished anything really so far in this book. He's just kind of made his estates worse managed somehow. <laughs> Whereas I, th- I think this is the first time he's actually doing something positive. Not just trying to do something positive. I think he maybe achieves it. It's yet to be seen. Don't completely remember. <laughs> sure. No, but it, I mean, it's the first time where usually when he does something, to your point, it's almost immediately contrasted with uh, by the narrative saying, this is what really happened by his right, actions. Right. And this is the first time where his actions to what you're saying are taken seriously. And as like a step, you know, him going out of his way to cover up the attempted heavy quotes elopement is not treated like a joke like it would be in many like his actions are treated in many other places in the book it's treated as you know him going kind of above and beyond for this sort of newfound love he has for this teenager yes well the question on why he does it is of course that you could call into question his motives but regardless of whether he did it for not the right reason he still did it he still did something good Whereas before he was trying to do something good, but actually did something bad. So his motives were good, but his outcome was bad. Whereas here, his motives were probably not great, but his outcome, I think, was good. Granted, it was, uh, I feel like kind of a very small scale thing that he did, but it does, of course, have like a giant impact or should on Natasha Mm -hmm. in the sense that her reputation society won't be completely just tarnished from that yeah yeah but remains to be seen so from the from from last part or the part before last part one of the two i don't remember where andre leaves saying oh even though i'm 31 life's not over yet things are still looking up for me now we've come forward to pierre saying well now that i'm in my 30s um (laughs) life's not over yet (laughs) basically Again, for the exact same reason as Nikolai, which is I'm in love with a teenager. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> oh. Yeah. War and peace. War and peace. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> or else you let the long silence just keep going instead of an outro this time. <laughs> this is a joke that's only going to work on YouTube. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs>
<laughs> I have to ask Matt before we wrap up, what is your, what, what's your quote of the week? What's your zinger of the week? I should say. <laughs> I didn't mark it. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. <laughs> I did like, um, how Tolstoy went out of his way to, uh, describe Helene at the theater and the way that he constantly describes every time she moves, he, right. You said, he describes her as almost naked, basically naked. And there's this one scene where he goes out of his way just to remind you that her chest is just absolutely exposed. And it's not really a zinger, but it does prompt me to question who but the narrator is looking. <laughs> like, no one else is said to be looking at her except the narrator who was just absolutely like, ogling her. Except the narrator who's like laser eyes and he's like he's the guy at the bar who's six drinks in and like the bar is just like laser eyesing the bartender. He's like sorry guys I was going to actually tell you about a different part of the story but I had to come back because um, I had to tell you about the almost naked woman in the uh, in the scene. <laughs> Wanted to make sure that no one missed that. Any homes. Book three part one next week. Come back for it. It's going to be a good one probably. <laughs> But before we let you go, we wanted to extend a quick thank you to all of our patrons who help keep our podcast running. JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Jacob, Elizabeth, Jay, Shannon, Haley, Blake, Amanda, Emily, Maya, Pack Rob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Drew, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Lucy, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Ariri, Larkin, Alex, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Emily, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Alexandra, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. And the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.